the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses raised, heads bowed down. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. For those of you who don't know about this show, the first part of the show we talk about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the show, we talk about history, politics, religion, and sometimes baseball. So today we're going to be touching about baseball and politics. The baseball, we're talking to Ron Rappaport, who had a book about Ernie Banks, Mr. Cub. And, you know, we're in World Series season right now, and it's one of those ironies that Ernie Banks, who played, you know, close to 20 years in the major leagues, uh, was most valuable player twice, Hall of Famer, never got to play in a World Series. We'll listen to the, the life of Ernie Banks, Mr. Cub. At the end, we're going to be talking a little bit about politics. We're going to talk to Sebastian Gorka, who you can listen on this station every week from uh, Monday through Friday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And Sebastian Gorka is always entertaining, but he's got a book out, The War for America's Soul. So we'll be talking to Dr. Gorka after that. In the meanwhile, let's get back to estate planning. And, you know, if you have any email questions, you can always email us a question. Beth, what, what's our email? Ask Mike Connors at gmail.com. Ask Mike Connors at gmail.com. All right. So now we do have a couple of email questions that came in. First, Beth, you're on deck first. Okay. Dear Mr. Connors, earlier I was listening to your 970 program. It motivated me to write this email. My wife and I are in our mid-80s. We need a new will. One of our objectives is to protect our assets from being spent on nursing home care. We own a few residential properties here in Queens, and we have two grown children. Where do we start? Have we waited too long? Jerry. Well, it's never too long. You never know what's going to happen. The first thing I would recommend is those residential properties or whatever properties you may own be placed in an irrevocable trust. It's kind of like a partnership between the parents and the children. The children can't sell the house without the parents. The parents can't sell the house without the children. But the parents really have the most leverage and they're in control. And why do we want to put the properties in a trust? One, the properties in trust do not go through probate. They do not go through court. 
The children ordinarily can sell the houses tax-free after you're gone without having to go to court. And by ordinarily tax-free, in this case, that would be $5,740,000 for husband, $5,740,000 for wife. So if you're under those numbers, tax-free. If you're over those numbers, we better do some tax planning and work on that. So that's number one. Number two, we get the five-year clock started for nursing home bills. If we deed the properties over into a trust in November. December is month number one on the, the, the five-year clock, and we're at four years and 11 months. You're always better off with a shorter clock because it's not as if you go to a nursing home in four years and 11 months. You lose everything. You pay for one month, and you're home clear. And you know, a lot of people say, well, again, I'm in my mid-80s. I'm not going to live five years. People are living longer than they expect. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to somebody. They told me, you know, I'm not going to live the five years, and they come back 10 years later to make a change. So you got to expect to live longer. And then say, well, what's going to happen? If I die, if I die, the trust doesn't do me any good. No, if you pass away, the assets in the trust go out tax-free to your children. You know, they don't have to go to court. They don't have to go through probate. You know, there's very little loss in that as long as you can work with your children. The other thing, and this is one of the most important advantages of an irrevocable trust in New York, if you're over 65, which you're in your mid-80s, if you're over 65 and you put most of your assets in an irrevocable trust in the near future, the month after you finish you switch switching your assets over to the trust, you can apply for home care community Medicaid in New York. There's a five-year look-back period for nursing home Medicaid, but there's not a five-year look-back period for home care Medicaid. So if you put your assets in the trust, you can apply for home care Medicaid the first day of the month following the transfers. And a lot of people can stay out of a nursing home if their assets are in a trust, because especially if you have family support, you have a spouse that can help supervise a home attendant, you have children in the area. Most of the time, there are a lot of good programs in New York, and you can stay out of a nursing home in New York with home care Medicaid. And that's one of the biggest advantages of an irrevocable trust. You're over 65, you're disabled, you put your assets in an irrevocable trust. Let's say during the month of November, on December 1st, you can apply for home care Medicaid, community Medicaid. Community Medicaid pays for any medical bills not covered by insurance. Home care Medicaid Kate pays for home attendance, home equipment supplies, and any medical bills not covered by insurance. And, and if you want to hear anything more about an irrevocable trust, you can go our, to our seminars. Uh, Matt, at the end, will, will have the date for our next set of seminars. Uh, most of the time, a good part of the conversation has to do what we what do we do with our house. We'll tell you how to take care of your house, where it goes out tax-free to the kids, protected from medical bills, nursing home bills. So listen for one of our seminars. If you want to call for an appointment at Connors & Sullivan, give us a call at 718-238-6500. Each week, Kevin McCullough takes one of the email questions. He asks the question on his show for the benefit of his listeners. Kevin, take it away. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Every week, we promise you that you'll get one of your legal questions answered by none other than Mr. Mike Connors. No, not the guy from Hawaii Five-0, but the guy that is the boss when it comes to uh, insurance, uh, I'm sorry, estate care, elder law in uh, New York, uh, uh, er- tri-state area uh, with offices in the five boroughs. And uh, Mike, this week's question comes from Margot. She says, I want to leave my house to my church, but I don't know how to best accomplish this. Mike Connors, how does she do it? Well, you know, a lot depends on where, when she wants to leave it, but I assume she wants to leave it after she's gone. The, the way I would ordinarily do it, we would do a will leaving the house to the church, assuming that's what she wants. Then I would do a revocable trust, and in the trust I would say I leave the house you know, to my church or whatever. And then we need an executor who's going to carry out the terms of the will and a trustee who will carry out the terms of the trust, which is going to be the same person. Now, why is it important that she do both? Well, I assume she's not going to, she may have relatives who may not consent to her will, and we don't want to go through probate. 
so in that case, we'd rather have the house go in the trust to to the church. Now, I mean, if her maybe her she's got a brother or sister who's a member of the church, and they're going to have no problems with it, and that's a discussion to be had. But if one of her relatives doesn't consent to the will, the the, the will be tied up in court for years. Right. So this is so, the best way to make that ironclad. Right. It's belt and suspenders to make sure it gets through there. <laughs> I love the analogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, Mike Connors, if you've got a question for him, uh, you should send him to askmikeconnors at gmail.com. We'll answer one every uh, Thursday here on Kevin McCullough Radio. But he'll also answer them on his uh, Saturday and Sunday morning broadcasts on 8 o'clock, 8 o'clock at a- AM 570 and 102.3 FM, The Mission, and Sunday mornings at 11 on AM 970, The Answer. You can also call the office and get your questions answered there, 718 718- 238-6500. Maybe you don't know how to set up your will or do a, a revocable trust. That's what they specialize in. 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, thanks so much. Thank you, Kevin. Now, our next question. Josias. Okay. So, now, wait, wait. Who are you again? You're the guy from Puerto Rico, right? <laughs> yes, I'm the guy from Puerto Rico, everybody. Okay. You're telling everybody how to do a trust in Puerto Rico. Oh, yeah. Whoever ago. has some problem in Puerto Rico, this is a place to come, okay? I got you covered. Don't worry about okay. it. So, what's our question? Okay, next question is from Wendy. Okay. So, hi, Mike. What is a kinship proceeding and how does it work? Okay, kinship proceeding. Usually, it happens when somebody dies without a will. So let's say somebody dies without a will, their assets pass to the next of kin by law. Sometimes the family tree is is very clear. We know who everybody is. You got two, three kids, whatever, maybe even nephews and nieces. Usually a kinship proceeding comes into play when you have cousins because it's not always easy to tell the family tree with cousins because a lot of times cousins from the maternal side, from your mother's side, may not know cousins from your father's side, the paternal side. And in many cases, we have to have a hearing to see what the family tree really is. That's one reason you want to do a will, because you don't want to get through one of these kinship proceedings. If you have a will, you should avoid a kinship proceeding, because then you're leaving their assets. There's still a problem, even if you have a will. You have to contact everybody who's your next of kin by law. But ordinarily, you don't have to go through a kinship proceeding. A kinship proceeding is your cousin. Your cousin died without a will. There's no closer relatives and no brothers, sisters, you know, nephews, nieces. You know, Obviously, there's no children or whatever. In the kinship proceeding, you have to prove, let's say, if you're a cousin or a first cousin once removed, that you're a relative to get your share of the inheritance. And it's time consuming. It takes a long time. It's a little difficult because you can't testify yourself. We have to get other people to testify to show the family tree. So it's not as easy as you might think. It's it's not the worst thing in the world. Usually the courts give you Germans to get more information to, to try to put the, the family tree together. But again, because of that, it also takes a long time. That's one reason everybody should have a will. We should never go through a kinship proceeding. We should never try to figure out who should get your assets. It should be there. And here's one of the things in kinship hearing to remember. Your spouse's relatives are not your relatives. Some people think, well, my aunt died. My aunt was, uh, in effect, married to my uncle. Well, you're not your aunt's relatives in that case. Your aunt is by, you know, relatives have to be a descendant of your grandparents. That's what it takes to be a legal relative in New York, assuming you're not married. To be a relative, you have to be descendant of a grandparent. So if you're not a descendant of a grandparent, in other words, a second cousin, then you're not a relative. You won't share in the estate if there's no will. I know some people get confused about cousins once removed, first cousins once removed, and second cousins. First cousin once removed is that person's parent who's related to you. You and that person share the same grandparent, whether it's one out of four of the grandparents at least. Now, a cousin, a second cousin, you did not share any grandparents together. You were descended from the great-grandparents. And a first cousin, 
once removed is a relative if their parent is dead. A second cousin is not a relative. And I, it gets a little complicated. But if you have any questions about that, you can come to see us at uh, Connors & Sullivan. Now, we're going to take a short break. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hey, guys. And our attorney, Josias. Have a nice day, everybody. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars. On Monday, October 28th at Bocelli Ristorante, 1250 Highland Boulevard in Staten Island at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. And then again on Tuesday, October 29th in Midtown Manhattan at the three West Club, 3 West 51st Street at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500. That's Connors & Sullivan, 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. That's connorsandsullivan.com. Find out what you're entitled to. Come to a Connors and Sullivan free seminar. For more information, call 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Connors and Sullivan. Plan now for later. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. You know, in the last couple of months, we've been talking to, to some of the 1969 Miracle Mets. And of course, the Mets that year, the second place team to them were the Chicago Cubs. The star of the Chicago Cubs, maybe not at that time, but forever, for a lot of us, the star of the Chicago Cubs was Mr. Cub himself, Ernie Banks. And we're very happy to have on Ron Rappaport, who has a book on Ernie Banks, Let's Play Two. Welcome to Connor's Corner. Good to be with you, Mike. Why did you choose to write a book about Ernie Banks? Well, I knew Ernie here in Chicago. I missed him, uh, his playing career. But I would sit with him from time to time. And and I realized that, that if you would sit there long enough, there was a real guy beneath all the cheery, sunny, happy, optimistic uh, facade that he put on. And I was fascinated by that. So I asked him to call a um, – I, I asked him to – I said, Ernie, you know, you should write an, uh, an autobiography. You should tell the real story. 
we both know there's a real guy lurking there underneath. And he was game for a while. We had some very good conversations about growing up in a segregated poor community in Dallas, playing for Buck O'Neill in the Negro Leagues, coming to the Cubs and playing, dealing with um, white society for the first time. He never had a conversation with a white man until he was in the Army, dealing with the racism that he found in Chicago and, and his own personal problems. Four wives, all of the marriages ended very badly. Three children he was more or less estranged from. And on and on. I was getting pretty excited about it. Then he pulled the plug. He decided he didn't want to do it. So when he died, I went back to the transcripts, was saddened all over again because of how deeply he had dug, and decided that I would travel around and talk to the people who knew him best. Went to Dallas, talked to his family. His older sister, Edna, turned 90 last week. Found five of his high school classmates. Talked to as many people who knew Ernie at every stage of his life as I could, and to see if I could write a book that dug deeper beneath the smile and the facade and the mask he had hidden behind all these years. Yeah, because you always think of him, you know, as a guy smiling. You would see him on the interviews, and he was just smiling and happy, and he was just happy playing baseball. But obviously, there was more to his life than that. Well, we all lead lives that, you know, nobody's smiling and happy all the time. We all have problems and difficulties, and Ernie had plenty of them. He just found a way to keep the outside world outside, Mike. You know, people would go up and talk to him, and they'd come away thinking, golly, I got to talk to my childhood hero. I got to talk to Ernie Banks. And then they'd say, but all we talked about was me. Ernie kept talking back on, turning back everything on um, uh, keep, by keeping the outside world at bay. He found a way to do it, and he got away with it his entire life. But here's the problem with that. When you create a caricature and you inhabit it, you become a prisoner of it. His sons told me, I had long talk with both of uh, Ernie's twin sons, Joey and Jerry, and they were afraid that he became a prisoner of this, of this, uh, at, at this charade he had, he, had, he had created for himself and that it hurt him in the long run. Hmm. What was it like? What, what was his childhood like in Dallas? Well, it was very interesting. Ernie was one of 12 children. He was the second of 12 children. They lived in a shotgun house in an all-black section of town. You know, the shot, you know, shotgun houses where you open the front door and you can see clear through the back. No indoor plumbing, privy in the back, no electricity, wood-burning stove, pretty much dependent on the WPA, the government, delivering cheese and beans and flour and that sort of thing. They were so poor that one, Ernie once missed an entire year of school to go pick cotton with his father. And his friends were worried about him because, you know, if, if you get lost to the cotton fields once, it may be that way your whole life. But he came back. And he, here's the interesting about, thing about the neighborhood. As poor as it was and as segregated as it was, it was still a real community, the kind of place where any adult could discipline any child. One of his um, high school classmates told me, the last thing you wanted to hear walking down the street was, boy, stop doing that, because you knew that whoever had seen you doing something wrong was going to tell your parents and you were going to be in big trouble. Also, the school was not a bad one, Booker T. Washington High School. The teachers lived in the neighborhood. They kept an eye on, eye on them. So there was, as poor as the neighborhood was and as segregated was, there was still a sense of community. And Ernie did have a lot of 
brothers and sisters to hang out with and two parents who loved him. So as, as, as difficult and as deprived as his upbringing was, he still had a sense of community and a family to, uh, to, uh, uh, to, you know, to take care of him. Now, how does he get involved with professional baseball, Buck O'Neill, Negro Leagues? And, you know, I think there's some people out there, what do, what do you mean Negro Leagues? Can you explain that? Well, you know, before baseball, before Jackie Robinson integrated baseball, the Negro Leagues were a thriving uh, institution. They were all over the country, New York, Chicago, Baltimore, Memphis, and Kansas City Monarchs were the kind of the lord of them all. They were the best team. They were they were the greatest over the years. They won, world, you know, Negro League World Series and pennants, one after another after another. By the time Ernie got to the Kansas City to play for the Monarchs and the great Buck O'Neill, the Negro Leagues were dying. It was 1950. It's three years after Jackie Robinson has integrated the game. And the fans of the Negro Leagues dropped them like quickly, very quickly. All they cared about now was the players playing in the big leagues, Jackie Robinson, Roy Campanella, Larry Doby, Don Newcomb, Cecil Page. And so the Negro Leagues didn't have much attendance anymore. I talked to one Negro Leagues historian who said the papers weren't even running box scores, so he couldn't do this. You know, the statistics of the last years of the leagues are sort of lost in a mist somewhere. But Ernie loved it. He loved playing for Buck. He loved his teammates. He was the young guy, so they all took care of him. They traveled together. They ate dinner together. They hung out together after games. So now it comes to Chicago, and it's totally different. It's just him and Gene Baker, a young second baseman who they brought up so he wouldn't be the only one. And and he's with an all-white team. And when the games are over, the white players scatter. There's no camaraderie. He and Gene go back to the south side where they're living. It was very complicated. And get this. His first road trip, okay, late in 1953, after he, a couple of weeks after he'd come up from um, the Monarchs, whose season had ended, they go to St. Louis, and the players get on a bus and go to the Chase Park Plaza Hotel. Ernie and Gene picked up in a car by a guy who takes them to the black section of town, puts them up in his house. Whoa, welcome to the big leagues. This never happened in Kansas City. Ernie, Ernie had to deal with a lot of things. This is in Chicago. Right. He was playing for the Cubs then. Okay. I mean, but I was saying this is Chicago, not St. Louis or some other place no, on no. the road. No, no. They, they were on a road trip on, on, on the road when that happened. But no, they lived, they lived separate lives in Chicago, too. They were completely separate. Ernie wasn't used to that. Remember this community I was telling you about that he had at, back home? And then there was another community waiting for him with the monarchs. Now... He's on his own in a segregated town that he doesn't know too many people, and he has to come to terms with. Sure, he was he was in, lived in segregation in Dallas, but that's where his life was. Now his life is at the ballpark. It was, there was a, there was a big learning curve for Ernie. How did the fans take take to him when he first came up? Uh, they liked him. I think they did. I I looked for whether there was any racism. I'm sure there must have been. But there's no recorded instance of anybody yelling the N-word at him or giving him abuse. He didn't seem to, it didn't seem to do that. Um, and they brought some black fans. You know, the Cubs are on the north side. Not a lot of black people live there. Black fans would come up and they would cheer for him. So I think it was a good thing. If there was racism, overt racism towards Ernie, I'm not aware of it. All right. Now, he becomes, at the time, the 
the greatest home run hitting shortstop, you, you know, of the major leagues. You know, when he when he started to move to first base, I mean, he was the man at, at shortstop. Well, Ernie was a very good shortstop. He was sure fielding. He didn't have the greatest arm, but his arm was accurate, and he could get to a lot of things because it was real quick. He won a Gold Glove. He led the league in fielding percentage, but and he, because he was such a great hitter. I mean, one year he hit more home runs than every other shortstop in the National League combined. Because he was such a great hitter, baseball in general, and the Cubs in particular, had trouble coming to terms with it. Their idea of a shortstop was Louis Aparicio, who was playing for the White Sox a few miles away. Little guy who bunted and stole bases and hit behind the runner. Well, that wasn't Ernie. So the Cubs kept trying to replace Ernie at third shortstop. They tried him at third base, where it was a bad place for him. They tried him in left field, which was an awful place for him. They kept bringing in other players. But he lasted at shortstop as, as long as his legs held out. Then in 1961, he moved to first base, where he ended up playing more games at first base during his career than he did at, um, did at shortstop. Here's the thing you need to know about Ernie as a hitter, okay? From 1955 to 1960, we're talking six seasons. Ernie was the most productive power hitter in baseball. He had more home runs and drove in more runs than Willie Mays, Henry Aram, Mickey Mantle, Eddie Matthews, everybody else in baseball. Now, those players all went to multiple World Series. In those six seasons when Ernie was the most productive power hitter in baseball, the Cubs finished 123 games out of first place. I mean, he was he was wasted. He was... He was like he was playing a different game. These were his best years. You know, the greatest, some of the greatest years anybody ever had. He won two home run titles, two RBI titles, back-to-back MVP awards. And, and he, it was all for naught. Well, if you win an MVP, I don't know if it's for naught. But, okay, he eventually becomes a first baseman. How long does it take before the Cubs become a winning team? Well, the Cubs became a winning team. They had a great, some great excitement in 1967. You ever seen pictures of Wrigley Field where they have the flag with uh, at the top of the flag of the pennant for the team that's in first place and it goes down, down, down? Well, the Cubs are always down, down, down. Well, in 1967, there was a great moment in late in July when they when they on like a 12 game winning streak. They were really playing well, and they beat the they beat the Pirates, I think, and now they're tied with the Cardinals for first place. Well, the fans would leave. And the Cubs weren't used to this. They were screaming and yelling. And they were yelling, change the flag, change the flag, change the flag. They wanted that. They weren't going to leave until they pulled down the, you know, the flags of the flagpole and changed them. They backed up. I mean, that was sort of a, a, an indication of what was going to come two years later. In 1969, was madness. I mean, they were one twelve games in a row. They were first place by eight or nine games. The town was going nuts. And then it all came apart. You know, we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Amazing Mets. That's not the adjective they use in Chicago. <laughs> what happened? What happened that year as far as the Cubs were concerned? Leo DeRocher happened. He mismanaged that team so badly. Ernie, 38 years old, played in 155 games. Randy Huntley caught both ends of nine and a couple of hitters. He was just dragging at the end of the season. Don Kessinger hit 300 early in the season. And just dragging. They all played. Everybody whose name I'd mentioned played over 150 games. In the pitching, Ferguson Jackson started 42 games. 
Mike, that's the most game since Iron Man McGinney. Hawks, you know, Phil Regan relieved in seven games in a row. Eight is the record for consecutive appearances by a pitcher. If Fergie hadn't pitched a uh, complete game, Reagan, Reagan comes off, he comes off the mound. Reagan goes up and shakes his hand and says, that's one record I didn't want. This was all Neil. He blew it. You know, we talked to a couple of the, the Mets you know, over the last few months. And one of the things Gil Hodges always did, he rested the players. He got everybody involved. A lot of players complained about platooning, but nobody was overworked on that Met roster. Well, you're absolutely right. And in fairness, he had a younger team. The Cubs had four Hall of Famers, which are Hall of Famers on that team. And, and Gil could, could manage the team any way he wanted to, and nobody could really complain because they weren't of that stature. I believe that there was only one player on that team who had more than 400 at-bats. Guys like Ron Smoboda didn't play in a lot of games, but they were ready to have their moment. And Hodges also, here's the difference between Hodges and, and DeRocher. Hodges' player loved him. Leo's players feared him. And they would do anything for Gil. Remember J.C. Martin? He was a backup catcher on sure. the Mets team. Hitting the back. He came from Chicago. Right. He came from Chicago. And the next year, he was traded to the Cubs. 1970, he shows up with his New York Mets uh, you know, bag with his stuff and showing off his World Series ring. And they were muttering, you better put those things away. You know? <laughs> anyway, Martin thinks, hey, I'm home. This is great. I'm going to play for a, a team that you know, almost won the pennant last year. We're, we're going to have a good team. This is going to be fun. Two, within two weeks, he realized there was no hope. Leo was managing every game like it was the bottom of the ninth inning of the seventh game of the World Series. He had the players so uptight they couldn't perform. He overworked them again. And then I think he said the most devastating thing that's been said about Leo's managing of the Cubs. He said that if Gil Hodges had been managing the 1969 Cubs instead of the 1969 Mets, the Cubs would have won the pennant. Ouch. <laughs> Well, yes. Now, how did Ernie and, and Leo get along? Terribly, terribly. Thanks for asking. <laughs> Their relationship was poisonous from the first day Leo got to, to town. The thing you need to know about Leo is that he had to be the center of attention. What do they say? The bride at every wedding, the corpse at every funeral, the baby at every christening. That was Leo. So he comes to town. Who am I going to replace as number one? Well, it was going to be Ernie. Ernie said to me, Leo wanted to be Mr. Cub, and he went out of his way to make life miserable. He'd stand out on the field in front of the writers, Mr. Cub, my ass, knock off that Mr. Cub crap, uh, Gramps and Grandpa and all that. In the locker room, it was worse. It was worse. He'd be raggedy. They'd all, every all the players would be sitting at their lockers. You know, my grandmother could have made that play. You could have. You know, you shouldn't be here. We, why don't you retire? I mean, it was humiliating. And Ernie told me this. He looks around the locker room, and he sees his teammates who like him, who love him, you know, who respect him for the player he is and how hard he's trying and the player he was and as helpful as he is to them. And they're looking at him with pity in their eyes. And Ernie is just devastated by this. And it never let up. If you look at Leo's autobiography. He rips Ernie then, too. I mean, and yet, I talked to Fergie Jenkins, right? And he said, 
Leo tried to give Bernie's job away in first place five times. Let me list the names for you. John Bacabella, this guy, that guy, the other guy. And I looked it up, and Ernie missed four of them. There were nine <laughs> different guys that, Ernie, that Leo tried to replace Ernie with. And you know what? He played in 150 games every year anyway. So, okay, Ernie, I guess he from here, you know, he's a, he's an older first baseman. He's good ball player, not a superstar. But he still enjoys playing the game? I think he really did. I think he really did. I think he really got into it in 69. Remember I told you he played 155 games? Right. He also had 106 runs batted in. That's the most ever by a 38-year-old man. Babe Ruth had 103. Ty Cobb, 102. Willie Mays, 58. I mean, he played his behind off and all for nothing. And I got to tell you that he made jokes about it and kind of sighed when people asked, how did it feel to miss out? He was devastated. He said it was a hole in his life. He'd go to Cooperstown every year. You know, the, the Hall of Famers would come back and have reunions, hang out, tell stories, swap lies, you know. Ernie would look around the room, and he'd see that he was the only one there who had never played in a World Series. And he'd go up to Edgie Jackson and Harmon Killebrew and, you know, and Lou Brock. What was it like? What was it like to play in a World Series? And they would just laugh at him. Oh, Ernie, you were with the Cubs. You were never going to play for the World Series. And then he told me this. He said it got so bad at one point that he went to see a psychiatrist. And what could the psychiatrist tell him? Just that you'd done your best and it wasn't meant to be. That was a terrible hole in his life. Now, in your book, do you go into the personal life of Ernie Baggs? Because I remember something when he died and the different people fighting at the funeral. And, and I really don't remember it that well. But do you go into that? I do. I do. There's a whole epilogue about that. Uh, is what there was a dispute between his fourth wife, who he had left years ago. She was living in California. I believe they didn't see each other the last seven or eight years of Ernie's life. And his friend and caretaker, a woman named Regina Rice, who did talk to me and did tell me, and she was, he left his, his estate to her. There really wasn't much to leave except some memorabilia. And she was kind of, scold, you know, scolded in the press. He took advantage of an old man, and his sons were not happy either. The lawsuit is still going on, although Liz's lawyers left her long ago because the will was proved valid. Um, I, and the people I spoke with, I obviously can't take sides in the legal dispute, but the people I spoke with said that his that Regina Wright, who had been his friend and been helping him with his appearances and so on, took very good care of him. That all she wanted to do was help him, and that she was always around and always deferential and always took him places and he would have been lost without it because, remember, he had no family there with him. He had friends that came by to see him, Billy Williams, Fergie Jenkins, some friends around town. But mostly, I'm sorry to say, he was kind of a lost soul. Uh, he'd hang out at the Wrigley Building. He'd hang out at Harry Carey's restaurant. There was a restaurant named Bongiorno's. There's a restaurant named Bongiorno's next door to Trump Tower where he hung out with the owner who was his next-door neighbor in the, in, in the apartments of Trump Tower. So he hung out with some people, but mostly he didn't have much of a purpose in life. And that, that was troublesome to learn about and to write. It was, it was hard for me. Why is this book worth reading? What do you want the public to get to know about Ernie Banks? I want the public to get to know the man who fooled us for so long because we let him. We let him get away with it. We said, oh, that's Ernie, and then we walk on it. Start writing about Mickey Mantle's drinking or something. For some reason, he escaped analysis 
And here's my belief, Mike, that in learning about the real guy who had a real life, who had real problems and real joys, just like all of us, that we can come to appreciate him and love him all the more because of what he went through. That's my hope. Well, thank you for writing the book, Ron. I mean, the the name of the book, Let's Play 2, that's, you know, when whenever Ernie Banks was interviewed back then, he said, beautiful day, let's play 2. And, and that was his trademark. And you're giving us some insights behind that trademark. Thank well, you. that's my hope. Yeah, I, 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 yeah that, that's my hope. Thanks. The name of the book, Let's Play 2, Ron Rappaport, the author. Thank you for being on Connor's Corner. My pleasure. My pleasure. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress, a government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, Call 718-722-6001 or visit ccbq.org. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Our next guest right now is probably the best voice in radio who you can hear on these stations every week, Monday through Friday, Dr. Sebastian Gorka. Welcome to Connors Corner. Thank you for having me. All right. Now you got a book out, The War for America's Soul. What's it about? Very much what its title says. We are in a war. This nation is in a war for our future, for the soul of this nation, and to recapture the values upon which it was founded. We uh, we have a, a country where one of the two political parties has become extreme, has become radical, is uh, typified by anti-Semites like uh, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib. We have a party that says, hell yes, we're coming after your guns, a party that wants to give taxpayer-funded health care to illegal aliens. Uh, we, we have a party that's out of control, and they wish to subvert the last election and uh, undermine the next one, and that's why they're trying to impeach President Donald Trump, uh, a man who has not committed any crimes. At least I haven't, one, haven't heard one Democrat tell me why they're impeaching the 45th president. Looking over your book, one thing I was surprised, you, you dwell 
upon the philosophies. You're, you're talking about philosophers. Nobody in, in nobody in the audience has heard except people who read an awful lot. But you think they're very <laughs> influential in the in, in the in the ascent of the left. Yeah, I, I needed to answer that question. How did we get here? I get asked that a lot when I travel around the country. People say, "How did this happen?" And I, I was sure that it wasn't. You know, eight years of Obama, you didn't just flick a switch and suddenly you have people like the Butcher of Richmond, uh, Governor Northam, Ralph Northam of Virginia, saying, well, third trimester abortions, well, we could actually kill the child after it's born. That that doesn't happen overnight. So um, I sat down, I did uh, the requisite research. I was helped a great deal by an incredible, incredible man who we, we lost far too early, and that's Andrew Breitbart and his book, Righteous Indignation. And my goal is I took what I learned from him and others, and in the War for America's Soul, I, I map out what the, the antecedents of this radicalism are, how the Democrats became this party of extremists who hate this country. And, and it's, it's all there. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's the names, it's the dates, going right back to an Italian communist in prison called Antonio Gramsci, who begins it all right through the Frankfurt School, right through the Saul Alinsky. I even have original passages from Hillary Clinton's Wellesleyan um, dissertation on Saul Alinsky as one of my appendices to the book, just to prove to people that this didn't come out of nowhere. The left had a plan, and sadly, it's been working, and we've been letting them succeed. The question is, like, who's they who have a plan? Who are those people that start? Who, who's the Frankfurt Institute? Who, who, are, who were they, I should say? Well, these are mostly uh, German philosophers who uh, left Germany in the 1930s, were welcome here in Berkeley and Columbia and across the Ivy League. And these were people who came up with, you know, Adorno, Adorno and others who came up with this idea of a deconstructionism, critical, uh, critical studies. These are the people that, that led eventually to authors like Howard Zinn, who wrote the most influential a Marxist a school book in use today, The People's History of America, and it goes all the way to Hillary Clinton and Obama. So these are people who believe uh, that America believes that everything has to be expressed in terms of victims and oppressors, and that their job is to subvert the greatest nation on God's earth. You mentioned Hillary Clinton, and she wrote a paper on Sal Alinsky. Who was Sal Alinsky, and what were his tactics? Well, he called himself a community organizer, uh, he was a hardcore communist who, based out of Chicago, really took the, the abstruse writings of um, Gramsci and others and translated them into a playbook, into a, a way to actually uh, defeat the, the institutions of, of Judeo-Christian civilization. And his, his great uh, contribution, quote-unquote, to the left was to say that you can't defeat, you know, communism only worked in uh, Russia because of its peasant class, because it was mostly an uneducated feudal or quasi-feudal system. He said in, in a robust, healthy nation, a Western a democracy like America, the radicals are never going to win if they go up against the establishment head on. So he said, don't do that. You've got to subvert the institutions, the healthy institutions from the inside, whether it's the bureaucracy, whether it's the unions, whether it's you know the nuclear family, you subvert them from the inside, and that's how we win. And unfortunately, uh, Saul Alinsky's book, Rule for Radicals, became the textbook for the left 
And that's why the only picture you can find of quote-unquote constitutional law professor Barack Obama teaching is a photograph when he's standing in front of a chalkboard and he is diagramming out Saul Alinsky's rules for radicals. That's all you need to know. How did these radicals take over the Democratic Party? I mean, the Democratic Party of our fathers was not the Democratic Party today. How did they take it over? Very, very assiduously, uh, with, with, with persistence, uh, with 24-7 a dedication to their cause. It's, it's less a question of, of how they took over the Democrat Party. The Democrat Party is a, a creature of the left. It's more a question of how we let them as conservatives. Because it's not about the party, it's about our culture. This is another great contribution from uh, Andrew Breitbart, who taught us that politics is downstream from culture. Look, look at American culture today whether it's the media, whether it's uh, Hollywood, whether it's our high schools, whether it's our colleges, they have been captured by the left. You, you can go to an Ivy League school today and major in English literature and for four years not study Shakespeare, the greatest author that ever lived in any culture. Why? Because he's a dead, white, heterosexual male. That's, that's the insanity. And wh- why, did they, why did they succeed? Because guess what? We let them. The, the right didn't do anything to stop these people. Uh, and as such, uh, we, we were you know, lurching towards the, the snooze button as they slowly took, after, took over our culture. What are we going to do now? What should, what should the public do now? You know, how do we wake ourselves up? Well, th- this is why I wrote The War for America's Soul. There, there's a couple of appendices in there on exactly uh, this question. And, and my answer is, I don't care where you are, whether you're in Massachusetts, California, or Texas, you have a role to play. Every single person listening to this show, everybody who reads The War for America's Soul, I don't care how old you are, I don't care how technologically challenged you deem yourself to be, if you're not on social media, if you don't have a Twitter account, a Facebook account, an Instagram account, guess what? You are part of the problem. You are not part of the solution. There's a reason that the president has more than 60 million followers on Twitter alone. We have to push back on the liars. We have to push back on the propaganda. We have to call out the corruption, whether it's at a local you know, school board or, or, or anywhere else. So every single person everywhere in America has a role to play. Your action counts. Don't just cut a check to the local candidate. Be part of the solution. Be a force multiplier for the president get out on social media and call out the bullies because that's all they are. They're just bullies. What's in the future? The war for America's soul. Who's going to win it? Well, it's up to us. Uh, There's a a saying that almost every single country has in its own language. Uh, Every nation deserves the government that they elect for themselves. So we've got 380 odd days left. Uh, The question is, are are you going to do everything that it takes to support this president? It's it's an indictment of the, the GOP, the Republican Party, that in the last three years, only a handful of representatives and senators have had the presence back out of several hundred people with the letter R behind their name. It's, it's, you know, it's a dozen people. It's Jim Jordan, Matt Gates, It's Louis Gohmert. It's Devin Nunes. It's Mark Meadows. It's Lindsey Graham. And, and we've almost exhausted the list. We, we have to be part of the solution. We have to make sure that this man who gave us a grace, a window, a window towards liberty in 2016 is reelected. So everybody listening to your show, do your part. Get out there. Be a force multiplier for the president politically. And don't forget to tune in 970 The Answer Monday through Friday to listen to Dr. Sebastian Gorka. <laughs> and the book, the name of the book, The War for America's Soul. Thank you, doctor, for being on our show. Good luck to you. Hope to see you again soon. 
Thank you. And if anybody wants a signed copy, just go to sebgorka.com, S-E-B-G-O-R-K-A, sebgorka.com. Sebgorka.com. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you, guys. Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors & Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years. I'm Mike Connors. Come to our office for a free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, and your legacy. There's no one strategy that fits everyone, but the biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is no planning at all. Call Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law today to schedule a free initial consultation with an attorney at any of their convenient locations in Brooklyn, Midtown Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Or visit their website, connorsandsullivan.com. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home, but if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit catholicscomehome.org today. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, at this point, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hey, everybody. Okay, now, Sebastian Gorkin, you know, yeah, I just love his voice, and I it's just entertaining to listen to him on the He's radio cool. each day. He's just not, very cool. Not that I have a chance to listen to him that much. No. But. We had lovely dinner this weekend with your cousins, Tom and Sophie, and in the car, you know, we were talking about his book, his his new book, and I absolutely love it because I love history. I love getting things in, in perspective. And he goes back to Rousseau. You know, where do these where where do the ideas come from that are tearing our um, the fabric of my society apart? And it's very interesting, very, very interesting. And how Marx took all of these philosophers, how they took pieces of the philosophers, and he came up with his ideas, and then how it came across. It's just very interesting. And we had a great conversation in the car coming back with it. And um, I want to I thank Dr. Gorka, because it's a, it's a book that's easy to read, and it's, it puts things in perspective. Let's not forget to thank Joe Piscopo for <laughs> everything. I mean, you know, he's in Absolutely. Italy right now. so Having I, a good time. I, yeah, but, you know, he's been great to us over the last few weeks, months, whatever. He's always been great, but he's been We've, especially great. You know, you're a fortunate man. <laughs> oh, goodness. 
A now, very fortunate man. Now, if any of you want to you know, learn more about estate planning and elder law, again, we're going to be having seminars. Uh, we're going to be in Brooklyn you know, in December, and we should be announcing the time shortly. But the idea behind a seminar usually is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes and avoiding going through a court, avoiding probate. So if, if you want to attend any of our seminars, you can give us a call at Connors & Sullivan. Now, I'm not at all the seminars all the time. Joe Piscopo says you are. Well, I try to be. He, he said you Don't can catch, put him on the spot. He says you can he catch does at the seminars. Okay. You're going to be at the Three West Club. I'm going to be at Three West Club. I don't want Joe Piscopo to think that I'm not doing what he's saying I'm doing. So for sure, I'm going to be at Three West Club. And so anybody wants to come see me, come see me. I'm not going to tell you anything. I'll just chat with you. Okay, so that's at the Three West Club, Three West 51st Street, Tuesday. I think we're going to be there at 11 and 3 o'clock. And then we're going to be in Brooklyn in December, early December. We're going to take a break for Thanksgiving. So then we'll be back in in early December. Thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer. Tune in next week at the same time, and hopefully we'll hear some more questions. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. We are gathered, we are gathered here on hallowed ground, voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars. On Monday, October 28th at Bocelli Ristorante, 1250 Highland Boulevard in Staten Island at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m., and then again on Tuesday, October 29th in Midtown Manhattan at the 3 West Club, 3 West 51st Street at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. Can't go to any Connors and Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors and Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors and Sullivan at 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Connors and Sullivan. Plan now for later. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.